0: Hello and welcome to the Dyslexia Mom Boss Podcast, the show that helps you not only feel empowered and knowledgeable, but confident and a boss mom in the dyslexia journey. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren. Hello, and welcome back to the Dyslexia Mom Boss podcast. I'm Dr. Lauren, and today's guest is Debbie Meyer. Debbie, can you introduce yourself to the audience today?
1: Thank you so much for having me. So I am Debbie Meyer. My name rings a bell in New York City because there was another Debbie Meyer. (laughs) So I actually went to one of her schools. So I'm a mom. I'm the wife and mother of dyslexic people. I'm the sister-in-law and aunt of other dyslexic people. And through all of them, learned a lot about dyslexia and learned even more through my journey that I'm looking forward to telling you about.
0: Awesome. Yes, and for those of you who don't know, Debbie and I have been in this space for a while. I know that you've seen my name, I've seen your name on LinkedIn, and I think at a few like Decoding Dyslexia events. So I'm just really excited that we were able to connect. And as you all know, I love, being able to have people share their stories, especially moms. So dyslexia runs deep in your family. So let's hit the ground running. So my first question for you is if you could find a word, and sometimes I offer a phrase because I know sometimes it's hard to find one word. What word would describe your cube or your dyslexia journey with your child?
1: I think it has to be a phrase from frustration to, gosh, I mean, it's just not ending. Yeah. But it's to resolution, I guess. Okay. Okay. And ongoing success. Yeah. Frustration to success, I
0: think. That actually leads into the next question. What is your story? And, you know, I don't know how many kids you have and how many are dyslexic and how old they are and where they are, but please give us a summary. Like, what was your story?
1: So my son went to uh, preschool in a um, big, big church in New York City, where you wish, but it was fine to send him to preschool in the church. It was exciting. Um, no one noticed anything particular about him. We thought he was reading early because one time I'm standing at a bus stop and he looked up and he said, MTA spells bus. Oh.
0: Said,
1: oh he knows how letters make words. Right. Cool. Also turned out that he's colorblind. So through preschool and pre-K, teachers were very worried that he didn't know his colors, mm-hmm. even though we filled out forms that said he was colorblind. Okay. But, you know, all I heard is that he was a joy to teach. Right. No one said he doesn't like rhymes. He's behind already in phonemic awareness. No one said that until the end of first grade. He just wasn't keeping up with his peers. So he went to a week of professional development for teachers. He was one of the students that they were working with. Turned out this was not a evidence-based program the teachers Mm -hmm. were getting professional development in. So it just didn't help him. By, in second grade, he got an IEP and even a psycho ed report from the school psychologist who described dyslexia in his report, but did not name it. Of course, of course. And at the meeting, my husband and I were there and we said that dyslexia runs in the family. And the school assured us they could teach our kid to read. You know, they shut us down about dyslexia, but assured he would do great in an ICT class. What is that? Integrated co-teaching. Oh, okay. A special ed teacher and
0: a... A um, gen ed teacher. Ed teacher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
1: And he did not do well. He kept slipping further and further behind. We started tutoring and I kept him... And um, I hope the podcast people will see this, but he was behind and he kept going a little further behind, but was improving enough for the school to say he's improving. Right. He was just never closing the gap. Sure. So in that summer... Actually, he had a night, just a regular summer that summer. But in third grade, I asked my sister-in-law, who had already dealt with all this, for some names of some neuropsychs, because Mm -hmm. clearly we needed more help. And she sent me a list of like five or six neuropsychs in Manhattan. And just looking at that list, I realized that parents that don't have the flexibility I have would not be able to deal with this list.
0: Right. Parents
1: that worked in, you know, our Walgreens that couldn't just make calls during their day because these neuropsychs weren't answering the phone. They were calling you back when they had breaks. Right. So I started seeing the inequity right then. Mm -hmm. But we did get him into a neuropsych who was fantastic with kids his age. And he did say he is clearly dyslexic. Right. But even then, the neuropsychs know as little about education as education knows about the neuroscience. He would need sets. Well, SETS isn't going to work unless the SETS teacher knows how to
0: teach reading. Right. And for our audience, what is SETS?
1: SETS is special education. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Teacher support. I have to actually look it up. But it it is more of a small pull out than a push in in the class. So it's a pull out for special education. Okay. Um, Exactly what the acronym stands for. Sure, sure. So he didn't get SETS. He still had... A teacher that knew a little bit about the science of reading, but not
0: enough, enough
1: time, not a high enough dosage, not fidelity, mm-hmm. nothing that really helped. So we sent him off to Camp Dunnebeck, which is a camp in northern New York City, right now is in Kent, where the Kildonan Teacher Training Institute trains tutors yes. for two weeks. And then the tutors do their practicum with the kids. But it is in summer school. It feels like summer camp. There are horses and water things. You can swim. And you take a and break. Water ski. Yeah. You know, it's camp. And i was sleep away. So the kids had a lot of time in their day, mountain biking, all sorts of camp stuff. And he came back really having closed that gap a little bit. And his school had everyone at the beginning of the year write their hopes and dreams. And he wrote it in beautiful cursive, posted on the wall. He got no further support though in that fourth grade class. And went backwards. Of so course. Of then course. we decided we had to switch schools. We just couldn't kick this ball down the field anymore. Right. And we switched him to the Winward School for kids with dyslexia. Okay. And second week in, at Winward, he called down from his room and said, "Can I leave the light on for 15 extra minutes so I can finish this chapter?"
0: Wow. Like, Who's
1: that child? Yeah, you're Who like is that child in there. That's
0: awesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's where my journey actually took off in another direction. And I started advocating Mm -hmm. and I thought I'd get advice from then Brooklyn Borough president, Eric Adams, because he had been a state senator. He knew his way around Albany and might be able to help me in understanding teacher accreditation processes. he had also been on both sides of the criminal justice system. Wow. And already a friend of mine had asked me to look into what, Dyslexia has to do with criminal justice, and I found the Texas prison study and yes, found some other studies that showed the high rates of dyslexia in our prisons. Mm-hmm. So he was very interested in this. Didn't have a whole lot of advice for me, but he clearly was still thinking about it. And then I went to talk to my friend David Banks. He had been in education for a long time. And I thought he might have advice for me, and he was really interested. Wasn't sure how I could tackle it, but you know, he encouraged me to keep going and. I joined some things. I joined New York City's Arise Coalition, which fights for, it's a watchdog group on the DOE and fights for kids with learning disabilities. And I joined <clears throat> dyslexia and started doing other things. But what was most, oh, and then I live in Harlem. Right. And there's a program in Harlem where five people every year get fellowships to audit classes. Oh. Use the library at Columbia get an email address, and you can meet with professors. And I started taking classes. My project was looking at the role of universities in ending the Dyslexia to Prison Pipeline.
0: Wow. So I
1: was taking all sorts of classes which should have talked about dyslexia and learning disabilities, especially because it counts for about 80% of all learning disabilities. Right. wasn't mentioned. Of course. wasn't mentioned in sociology classes called things like Children at Risk Mm-hmm. wasn't mentioned in education classes called critical pedagogies and educational foundations. Wow. It just wasn't mentioned. It was mentioned in a history of the English language class with a linguist who understands the science of reading. Right. And the most traction I got with it was in a critical race theory class at the law school. You
0: know? Wow. Okay. So you really have to dig deep to get this information, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. So it was amazing, but you know, I also had a chance to have meetings and take classes at a Teachers College, and things are evolving. Right. But things have really taken off in New York City, so that's what's most exciting.
0: Yes. So let me ask you this: How old is your son, if you don't mind Eight. our audience knowing?
1: <laughs> well, he is they, and they. Okay. Are seventeen. Okay, so yeah. they're in high school. They're in high school. Yeah. So I'd like to say his progressive school taught him to think when we're taught him to read and he got into Bard high school, early college. So they are a senior in high school and a sophomore in college. That's awesome.
0: Okay. Because for me, I like to know the context of the time period, because it's just mind boggling to me to think like this could be five years ago, or this could have been 10 years ago, or it could have been 30 years ago, because Nothing's really changed. I mean, we're trying, you know, again, like I say, this is why this podcast exists, why the work that I do exists, why the work you do exists. I mean, there's stuff that's there that people are just not aware of. And yes, I'm very aware of that Texas study. I actually referenced that in a social justice presentation I did for a literacy summit about more specifically the brown and black inmates and how high the dyslexia rate is. And then it gave me pause to say, are we testing these inmates once they're in? jail because we've got to make sure that this is these screeners are happening before they yeah. get there which i know yeah. new york city are they actually implementing the screeners what's going on with that um <laughs>
1: they've started talking about it some exciting news for me is i'm working with the hudson link prison college program okay and we are going to have a dyslexia day at sing sing oh that
0: sing should sing be ex- the yes in. the prison um, and ascending
1: I'm talking to a couple of literacy groups about how to bring a literacy program in because I think because of the limitations on technology in prisons and right, who can be in there. My dream is to help skilled literate incarcerated people right. teach reading to illiterate incarcerated people. Yeah, which you know we'll have to do a lot of professional development and training. But right, there's not enough technology for people to do it on their own with some of these programs where you can just go at your own pace. Right. Well, I'm really looking for one that will teach people how to teach reading. That will also help other communities. People leave. They know how to teach their granddaughter how to read. Exactly. Advocate for their granddaughter.
0: Exactly. So I have a colleague of mine. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but the audience Well, listen in. So Hildebrand Pelzer III. I
1: do know him. He's been on a couple of conferences that I've done.
0: Yes, he's Um, amazing.
1: He was on my very first literacy social justice issue.
0: Yes, I interviewed him about two years ago on my Instagram page. And actually, there's an interview on my YouTube channel if you're interested in watching it. And it is about basically finding the potential of these kids in the juvenile system. But what I was going to say was he is a big proponent of teachers of universities and colleges having their pre-service teachers actually student teach in the juvenile system or in prisons. And I know that first, if you have a class and then you see your student teaching is at Sing Sing, most people are going to freak out. But I think that if you look at it from the perspective of what you've described, where this Texas study, how is this happening? Why is this buried? Why did you have to take this critical race theory to really unveil all this? if it's taught in a lens that's saying this is a critical issue, then the student teaching wouldn't be a problem, you know, because I know for me, I went to Syracuse. So I'm very well versed. Actually, you're the third New York mom that I've interviewed. And my mom's side of the family's from New York. So I'm very familiar with that. But I did student teaching in Syracuse. And then I went to rural Chittenango. And that was eye opening because there was only one elementary, middle and high school. And then I did the suburban placement, but there was never talk of. Let's go down, you know, let's go to the local prison and actually work on these literacy skills because we know that universities don't really teach dyslexia. We don't talk about structured liter. I mean, you know, we're changing it now. But back when I was working on my master's in 2009, 2010, that was never a discussion at all. But Debbie, I will say, I love how you shared your child's story. I I didn't want to say your son because I know you said They. So your child's story. And then I love how you are talking about your advocacy work. So we'll touch on that in just a bit because I do want people to know how to connect with you. But to go back to your child, can you tell us a little bit about their ethnicity and the inequities? Because I know as we've talked about Brown and Black community, but I also know that there is a theme with some of the parents that I've interviewed where they have their inequities as well. So please shed light on that for us
1: we nice middle-class family, white, Jewish. He's not needing for much. Mm-hmm, However, right. he landed up in a specialized independent school where most of the kids were actually refugees from other independent schools. Oh, okay. And so they didn't have a lot in common with all these kids. They didn't arrive at school in a limousine. Right. <laughs> and that's just it. I was on the diversity committee at the school. To talk about it, I remember one day I went into a diversity committee meeting where kids had all gotten out of a limousine. <laughs> a driver,
0: oh my gosh,
1: held the door for them, and then none of them said they,
0: thank you. They of they course, ran of course, because that's just assumed. You're supposed to open the car door for me. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> However, the security officer at my kids' school stopped me one day to say, "You know, your son's the only one that says good morning to me every morning." Wow. You know, he's wanting for nothing. Sure. That's clear. I can't say he's wanting for anything, but he did feel different in the school. There was no house in the Bahamas and there was no house. Right. We had a couple bedrooms at his grandfather who lives in Western Massachusetts and we could go skiing, but there wasn't a Hampton's house. Right. You know, there weren't a lot of things. Yes. I think he had, you know, we went to Broadway. We did a lot of things in New York City, but there was still this year difference however he knows how to appreciate the difference sure but for the Winward school where he went there were he took eight classes a day and wow. right, a seven hour school day. okay parent teacher conferences were four times a year that
0: makes sense for yeah <laughs>
1: four years that's 128 conferences I think
0: wow wow
1: each one started with your kid brings so much background knowledge to our class I was like well fine but Teach him some new stuff, right? Right. You know, needs to learn deeper stuff, and so my kid would come home and he put on podcasts like "Uncivil," what you didn't learn about the Civil War. Right. They listen to Planet Money and Marketplace and some other things to learn about the economy. So they really just wanted to learn, right? Learn Things
0: starved learn to learn. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And now
1: they teach skiing. At the same little mountain where all the kids from success school, they ski. Okay. He's busy working and earning money. That's good. There's ethnicity and there's issues, but I think it's just more of a economic and values difference.
0: Sure. And I know from my experience of working in two specialized private schools, the first school was in the suburbs of Atlanta and there were families that had money and there were families that you could tell maybe they needed to take out a second mortgage. you know. Yeah. But it really wasn't like, a, oh my goodness, until I worked at a specialized private school in Washington, DC, in Georgetown, where the tuition at the time for elementary school was about 42K. And parents worked on the Hill and parents worked at the White House. And it was just no big deal to go to France. And I'm just like, yeah. wow, this is a different world. Obviously, these kids needed this specialized instruction. But I think of the equity issues of, well, what about the families that can't afford it? Now, for this specific private school in one of the surrounding counties, because they knew the school system couldn't support those particular learners, they had some sort of understanding that if whatever the special ed process in that county wasn't working, they then had to fund for that child to go to this specialized school for
1: free. I well, totally, a whole nother issue between mega cities and mega districts yes. and suburban small districts. So I sued New York City to get the tuition for my kid to go to the school.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay.
1: I hired a lawyer. I paid for the neural side. But you know what? I was suing some guy in the basement of some building, right? <laughs> and my lawyer was talking to that lawyer. Right. It had nothing to do with me. I didn't go to any hearing. But if you're in a smaller district in a suburb, those school board members you see at the grocery
0: store, a whole different
1: thing to decide whether to sue your school district.
0: Right. Well, and I think it depends on the size, because my county has about, I think, 60,000 students. So I don't think that that's considered small. Obviously, it's not New York City. But like I said, Chittenango, I was shocked that there was just one elementary, middle and high school. And I'm like, everybody knows everybody, but it was rural upstate New York. And so it's like, if you're going to sue that school district, you're probably going to know all of the people that are on the board. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: And that's
0: a different decision to It is. It really is because you have to live. And I think that was another thing too. When I was working at that school in Washington, DC, I was living in the suburbs. So I also never saw my kids at the grocery store. I never saw a parent. And I kind of liked that boundary. But yeah. I think, yeah, you're definitely bringing something different to the table for other moms to hear in this episode, that those are things to consider. And I know that this podcast is worldwide too. I have people listening from the Philippines, so I don't know what dyslexia looks like out there, but I'd be very curious to know. I've done some presentations
1: in Morocco and in Nigeria, I think.
0: Yes. Well, Nigeria is, I feel like as an African country, they're a bit more progressive than other African countries. And Morocco That's the Middle East. And I know I have a friend in Egypt and Oman, and they just do not talk about dyslexia. It is a disease out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So these kids have a very different experience learning Arabic than learning English. Yes. Arabic is nearly a one-to-one phonetic language. And English is... All over the place. Six to 44 to 250. Right. It's not one-to-one. Yeah. I remember my kid learned... He said Hebrew first grade once a week. Hebrew is also phonetic. Right. Once a week. At right. Hebrew school. And picked it up. And in first grade, he was reading pretty well in Hebrew. Not in English,
0: but doing pretty well in Hebrew. Right. It's, it's so a very interesting. Thing. It is. So Debbie, we are coming to the end of the episode and I definitely want to leave this final question and want to get your take on it. What advice can you give other moms on this journey so they know how to boss up?
1: I think you have to learn a little bit about literacy instruction. So you have really informed questions to ask your teachers. You know, what curriculum are they using? Is it evidence-based? What evidence do you have? And learn a little bit about what works for most kids, not just dyslexic kids. I'm worried about all 66% of kids that don't know how to read. So I think you don't have to learn how to be a teacher, but you have to learn enough about literacy instruction to ask informed questions. Learn about progress monitoring find out when they're progress monitoring and has there been progress? If there has not been evidence-based progress monitoring, how do you know if your kid's making progress and needs more? You don't have to learn enough to be a teacher, but you have to learn enough to ask good questions. Bring an advocate who knows to your IEP meetings.
0: Right. I love that. And I think every mom gives different advice whenever I ask that question. So I think it's always good. I should do like a little compilation of that final question for one episode. (laughs) I think that would be really cool. So. Debbie, where can we find you? How can people contact you?
1: Decoding Dyslexia NYC at gmail.com. The Decoding Dyslexia New York City Facebook page is also mine. Okay. don't really have a website or anything, but those two places will... Well, um, you're on Twitter. Twitter. You're on Twitter and I'm LinkedIn. On Twitter at Reader yes,
0: yes, yes. So those will be linked in the show notes. So those of you who are New York listeners and local, you can contact Debbie. She's a strong advocate. I've seen her in the space for a while and you're in good hands. So, thank you. Yes, thank you so much for sharing your story and talking about your advocacy journey because I love hearing that as well as just an educator and I love your passion. We're both passionate. So thank you so much for your time today.